What kept you? Oh, don't muck about. Do I look all right? Oh, you look lovely. You're positively radiant. Yeah. Here, what's this about you having some beautiful birds on the show tonight? You mean Norman Barrett's budgerigar? Oh, then. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw them in the makeup room when I went to get your comb just now. And I've got Anita Harris, of course. Oh, of course, she's always lovely, Super. isn't she? Yeah. The only thing is she won't believe it's really magic that I do. She thinks it's tricks. Oh, you know? no. Mm. You astonish no. me. You don't happen to have a little miracle I could really... David, have, have I ever let you down? Of Not course lately, I've gone no. for you. And then you say the magic words. Now, these are rather special magic words, David, oh, and okay. they're very exclusive. I've never said them out loud before. Couldn't you tell me? Well, I'll do it for you, okay. just this once. Yeah. Don't tell anybody. Yes. The words are... Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 57 of... <laughs> the Archives. I'm going to do that increasingly strange okay. as, as time goes on. Yes, round the archives, in case you didn't hear that. <laughs> round the archives. Well, welcome back. Yes. It's February. Yes. Or it hopefully still will be when I release this. I expect it will. Lots to pack in, so mm-hmm. we won't faff about. No. I will plug my gaming channel again, though. Okay. Uh, follow us on Twitch with the channel Troby, mm-hmm. where Warren and I are being increasingly strange as well, aren't we? You are. So we need 50 followers on there, and I've got 18. Okay. <laughs> little way to go, then. Then I can make a penny. Oh. Or maybe two. Okay. But here is Warren mm-hmm. having a look at... The black and blue lamp. I, I told you what happened. Tonight, Screenplay brings the 40s screen image of the British Bobby into the 80s. A fictional crook from 1949 is dragged into a present-day crime series after shooting George Dixon. Get back! Good PR. Dixon getting shot like that. Couldn't have come at a better time. Are you going to tell us how you shot George Dixon? I shot the cab cab. Screenplay, a black comedy tonight at 9.35 on BBC Two. The medium of television is a dangerous creature indeed. It must always be handled with extreme caution. To misquote Noel Coward from the film The Italian Job, it's more than capable of jumping out of its own grave and kicking your teeth in. So I approach the next item with a whip, a chair and a large hat that bears the legend Lion Tabor, which lights up at night of course. Earlier in the year a wonderful piece of audio mesmerism wafted across my speakers in the form of Martin Holmes's detailed review of the 1949 film The Blue Lamp. As a Dixon fan, I love the homage to the movie, which spawned the legendary television show on the BBC back in 1955, and so created a historic social reference, that of the Dixon style of policing. Let's not kid ourselves with the legacy of Dixon of Doc Green. We would safely sit at home surveying, from our voyeur's armchair, 
in a pure rear window style. Through this view, we'd see a world blighted with shabby but thick crooks who were outwitted by a pedestrian approach of an honest copper who sought to give a fatherly advice to them or a moralistic homily at the end of his beat. But as, a, as the black and white turned to colour and the world of the 1970s turned to beige, the clothes were flared and the shotguns were sawn off. Dixon found the age of tradition wearing a bit thin. Not anything was as simple to solve as a few chosen words. So why is he wittering on about social acceptance and perceptions of safety, you ask yourself? Some 39 years later, a world away from that of 1949 and the world of the blue lamp, on the 7th of September 1988, a BBC Two screenplay took up from where the film ended. It was entitled The Black and Blue Lamp. Before I managed to track down a very grainy copy of this production, I'd seen nothing more than a handful of uh, screenshots of the play. And to be fair, nothing stood out. After a number of years of reading rough synopses of the plot, it began to put an expression on the face. And fortunately, the face wasn't smiling. At the time, the Radio Times described the uh, the play as a black comedy, and I'll read you the uh, Radio Times entry for that programme. In 1949, Tom Riley is arrested for the murder of PC George Dix. As he awaits interrogation at the station, he is mysteriously transported into an episode of The Fifth, a 1988 police series where the hard men rule. This black comedy questions whether the police have changed or the way film and television has changed the prisoners. Very apt description. But unless you read the RT coverage, you'll be excused from thinking this could be the iceberg that sank the good ship Dixon, taking his good name and besmirching it with allegations of child abuse and inappropriate behaviour. But you need to view everything in context. The screenplay is tightly written, really crafted in a way that the Radio Times doesn't touch on at all. In my eyes, it's asking, what do the public want their TV cops to be? Honest and upstanding, or cutting corners through fit-ups to remove the disreputable from our streets, without questioning their methods or motivations? Because as it was seen with Dixon, the public wanted the real police to adopt his style and approach, because uh, it sat more comfortably within their moral compass. Now, that's not to say all coppers are bent, or their methods extreme, but at the time of broadcast, most people's perception of that police was made up from their interaction in the guise of getting a parking ticket or a speeding fine. But when it came down to the nitty-gritty protection of the community, they just wanted to sleep peacefully in their beds. So you found yourselves looking through those hazy screens, hoping for a copper with Dixon's morals and Regan's fists of fury. But of course, that character would be impossible to create if you'd be watching a short-lived schizophrenic TV cop. We open to a blank screen and the voice of a police radio operator asking for officers to attend the Coliseum Bingo Hall, where two men believed to be armed are robbing the place and that a police officer has been shot. The strains of modern pop music are heard in the background. A voice asks the radio operator, who's been shot? They reply, George Dixon. Christ, is nothing sacred. Replies the voice as the sirens start to wail. Cut to a black and white shot of a handcuffed prisoner in an escort in a 1940s police van containing two major characters from the film, Taff Hughes and cop killer Tom Riley. Tom is played by Sean Chapman, who is visually a good match for Dirk Bogard. He's clearly done his homework as his delivery of dialogue, even his body language, mirrors seamlessly that of Riley from the film. Taff is played by Carl Johnson, who would later go on to play the police dog handler in the comedy film Hot Fuzz. As the van proceeds to the police station, we see a shot of Taft sporting a cut above his head from the early raid on the jeweller's shore in Edgware Road, where he was coshed by Riley. The kindness of Taft is apparent as he allows Riley to have a snout whilst in the van. Even after the arrest of Riley's Dixon's murder, he hasn't 
hasn't been done over by Dixon's mate, but handled with kid gloves. Police station, from both eras, are played by the same actors, helping to assist with the impact that the juxtaposition of the modern-day transformation when it occurs. The legendary John Woodbine appears in one of his many guises as a senior police officer, that had been the mainstay of his career. But as we will see, he's not averse to the modern lure of corruption that is portrayed within his nick. The stiff upper lip of the war years is still apparent in the way the officers portray themselves in the strife and heartache of knowing that one of their number has been gunned down. Witness the uniformed inspector played Woodvine asking who lit Riley's cigarette whilst in the van, followed up by the saying, well done, I couldn't have done that. Riley tries to taunt the awaiting officers in the station by saying there had been a bereavement in the family as it was in the paper. No one reacts, because in the end the hangman would silence his tongue. Meanwhile, the new Greenhorn officer, now attached to Dixon's ten-beat, is being lectured in the ways of policing in pure Kenneth Moore fashion, from his appearance to what his badge of office stands for and how to keep the peace without fear or favour. Act of course, or very much the accepted form for the film-going public of the 1949. Meanwhile, Riley is furnished with all the luxuries of those housing days of austerity, a mug of station tea and a jam bun. Riley's left alone in the interview room with Taff when he strikes up another snout and the screen blends to colour. The background noises change from peace and quiet to phones ringing and sirens blaring. The modern age has been ushered in. The world of the 1940s will seem totally out of reach to Taff and Riley. The realism of the changes start to dawn on Taff as the room has changed from a drab one-chair job to a modern, well-lipped room with central heating, modern policing posters and appropriate offensive graffiti daubed on the walls. He rubs his aching injury whilst Riley straights to the places giving him the willies. The heavies from the CID are led by the inimitable Kenneth Crannon, with the wonderful name Detective Superintendent Cherry, aided by Ralph Brown a few years after his appearance on the bill. This is going to get painful for Riley in more ways than one. Cherry quietly informs Riley that he will cough to this, or he'll remove his testicles with a Stanley knife, or a similar style of dialogue, you get my idea. Crash Zoom and cue the music in opening titles to a modern fly-by-night 1980s one-off television series by the name of The Filth. Produced with all the garishness of the 1980s and with absolutely no panache whatsoever. The title sequence portrays the major ranks of CID sharing out a number of notes of the Bank of England variety from a plain envelope. We're under no illusion that they're well at it or bent. However you want to keep your corruption terms served up, it's dog-eat-dog world out there and they're just starting their breakfast. Riley has taught some rough justice as he's dragged down through the corridor of the police station in a very nasty and painful arm lock. Taff emerges into the sight of this bright, unsanitary world of the immoral police station. A nice piece of writing covers the fact that he was working undercover to follow Riley in a 1940s fancy dress event. Hence the uniform he was wearing. He's patted on the back by officers in the station and Cherry gives him a reassuring wink. The sort of thing that tells us Riley will be sorted out one way or another. In the charge room, Riley is being charged by the sergeant with Cherry and his entourage looking on. When reading out the charge, when it comes to proclaiming the year, Riley interrupts, protesting his innocence, still using his 1940s lingo. He seems to be playing a game in the eyes of the modern-day officers. Perhaps he's trying to work his ticket to the funny farm. The references to the film are thick and fast, and not just thrown in, but weaved into the dialogue with a loving eye for detail. This production, love it or hate it, has been a labour of love for the writer. Taff is told to go home to his wife and kids and rest for a few days. 
Ted declares he's a confirmed bachelor, to which the doctor advises him to take more of the tablets at times of stress. Woodvine and Crannan are extolling the values of the killing of Dixon, on various levels, of course. Woodvine states an event like this does wonders for the recruitment of new officers, often raising the number of people applying. Peppered with colourful and often uncomplimentary police lingo, a modern slant is put on the backstory leading up to the bingo hall shooting of Dixon and the subsequent arrest of Riley through Woodvine and co. As we delve into Riley's colourful past, we find he lives with his boyfriend in a nearby flat. A fact today's audience or generation would not batter an eyelid at, but could change the viewpoint of a late 80s audience. Little chuckle is given by me when we find out that Riley was lifted at Stringfellows who were holding their monthly Echo Love Garden theme night. Woodvine kicks around the name and recalls the Scotland Yard Ministries with warmth and fondness. They start talking about the concept of a traditional PC, the kindness, a bastion of moral fibre, and somebody with respect and pride for their rank and the example that they lead with. Everything the filth isn't. A nice nod to how they're supposed to behave, realising along the way those morals are either purchasable or within reach of any one of them. As they slowly begin to fit Riley up, it's clear the whole idea is easy to them and there's no challenge with this customer. Now the uncomfortable raises his head. And this is where the concept of the diction character is peeled away with the skill of a rusty penknife. For those of you who view the moralistic, affable Dixon, we're now presented with a modern-day portrait of a man of despicable morals and one under internal investigation. It's alleged that he was bunged a monkey to ignore a child-swapping party, a thought to totally abhorrent in any day and age. It must have seemed as if somebody had reached into your head and smashed all those memories of this sweet, caring, family-oriented policeman when watching this. A handful of throwaway lines create a concept that we've been lied to for years. But this was a gamble the writer and the BBC are willing to take. Any possible destruction of such a stalwart crime drama would never have taken place whilst Dixon was being broadcast, or its lead actor was still alive. But it shows the necessity for the audience to have its little tidbit to shatter their illusions of perfection. That's a change in the expectations of the viewing habits of the 1940s to the ones in the 1980s. The story progresses and slowly the body count grows in ever more dark and bizarre ways. We witness the rage of well-disciplined Taff slowly chipping away at him, being affected by his surroundings and enveloping grief of his friend's death. He beats a prisoner to death in a cell and subsequently breaks into the armoury of the police station and goes on the hunt for Riley. In questioning, Riley's elderly brief is tied to the chair by a scarf as he keeps slipping off because of his infirm estate. This results in him choking to death. He is a very short-lived character. Darkness gives way to an extreme storyline of shootouts and corridors and a storyline whose basic believability stretches the belief of any viewer. But this is the subtlety of this play. It holds up a mirror to the viewer, showing them how their demands for change has perverted the writing of modern-day crime drama. The 1980s audience is more demanding of the obscure, unique story arcs, if you like, and often asks for the reality to take a back seat. This was never more personified in late 70s, early 80s programmes such as The Professionals. The last few minutes have an armed Taff facing Riley in the corridor. The dialogue used is that used during the gunning down of Dixon in the blue lamp, but it's reversed and we see all the real character of Taff shine through. His inability to want to murder Riley in cold blood, but having the choice removed to him by baiting Riley. Back. Drop that and don't be a fool. Drop it, I say. Get back, I'll drop you! This thing works! Get back! Get back, I say! Get back! 
The inevitable happens and the gunfight off camera ensues between the station and Taff. Cherry states he can square this number up, no problem, and gives his signature wink to seal the promise. So that's it, the black and blue lamp. It's quite an eye-opener, well-written, paced, and years ahead of its time. It leaves the audience understanding how their perceptions of morality and protection from the dark hands of crime have evolved into the directionless TV cops of the 1980s era. Good night, all. Many thanks to Warren for that. Yes, thank you, Warren. I've never seen that, so maybe one day. Well, I do remember reading a review of it in Star Begotten fanzine many years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I've never seen it either, so interesting to hear about it. Yes. And now, a big, a big one. Yes. From Paul and Nick, Mm -hmm. as they take a look at... Survivors. Around the archives, people. It's me, Paul, Paul Chandler, Shayetti. I've got Nick Goodman here with me. We're going to talk all about um, one of our favourite series, one of Nick's favourite series, Survivors. Indeed, yes. So, um, where should we start, Nick? Well, um, I probably, uh, I, I probably am being inclined to start back in 1975 when the show started. Obviously, uh, I, if for the listeners uh, you know I, I, I don't know how much individually you might know about it but basically Terry Nation who created the Daleks uh, came up with this concept about the world being wiped out 95% of the world being wiped out by a, a deadly um, variant disease sounds sounds familiar and um, it, uh, it deals obviously with the British side because you know they it was the BBC and those shows um, and it's yes, it's a group of characters disparate throughout the country who get band together and try to make sense of it all and and try and rebuild civilization in whatever modest way they can. Um, it's it was a very strong, pertinent sort of uh, a show really. I mean, I've, I, I Nation's other big solo creation, of course, was Blake Seven. Now. I was six when The Survivors started and it was on at a later time than Blake Seven later was. Um, I remember, I I must have seen some sort of pre-publicity because I was aware it was happening when it was on. Now, I suppose it would have been sort of 8 o'clock, 8.15-ish time, um, which is slightly kind of borderline bedtime for me when I was a kid. Um, In fact, I... I must have gone. <laughs> I don't think I was overtly sort of sent to bed too early, but I do remember because it used to be on in '75. The first series was on before the goodies, um, and I do remember the sort of juxtaposition of you know this jollity and cartoon antics with the goodies, and then suddenly, whoa, it's the end of the world. You've got this. Uh, the title sequence was the thing that got me. It's the thing I remember from 
when it was on the telly originally, uh, which is the Chinese scientist reaching out for this uh, uh, virus, which falls to the ground and smashes, and uh, and then there's various things of him going and affecting the whole uh, world. Uh, you know, you see aeroplanes, you think, and it's an incredibly haunting title sequence. No, none of it, because none of the characters would have m- mentioned or be aware of what had happened. It, it basically tells the backstory in the title sequence that's never referred to, apart from the fact that there's a disease and it's, nobody knows where it's come from. It, it basically, the the viewers know more about the the, the origins of the uh, virus than the than the characters do. I don't think it was bedwettingly frightening for me, but it was very disconcerting. I I. Because the the initial shot of the this, the Chinese scientist reaching out, of course he's masked. He's he's got a plastic sort of thing, but because you're looking at it from the point of view of the the virus itself, and, uh, and of course with a lot of seventies things, you had horn-rimmed spectacles. Now I know this is going to sound a bit strange, but he kind of reminded me of a nightmarish version of my mum, because uh, she who wore horn-rimmed spectacles, and also she had a, a sort of podium of of bears and um various toys from her childhood um in the in her bedroom covered in this this um cellophane you know not um polythene uh clear polythene back and it was like my mother was being suffocated it was it was a horrible image and and of course the whole music the music uh, wonderful anthony isaac who, who just hits the ground running every time with his title musics um it, it is so kind of it's very scary and kind of ominous and um and yeah so i i very rarely got past the title music because it, it unnerved me i was just going to say I, I don't want to jump ahead but uh what i'd be right in saying that in the first episode there are a number of characters who are at least i mean i can think of at least one <laughs> yeah. who um Peter Bowles plays a key role, and which makes you think that yeah. he's going to be in it. But it's like a, it's like a trip. They have That's right. they have some well known faces, and you you think that those are going to be the ones yeah. who survive. In fact, when they did the 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 later version of in the in the noughties, they did the same thing and had a number of people who. Um, That's how Freema they didn't they? Yeah, she was in it, but but didn't make it to the full series. But uh, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, uh, Peter Bowles. Yep, first episode. Uh, Caroline Seymour is our, our lead character in the first series. She plays Abby, who's a, a very rich, spoiled mother. No, spoiled, not spoiled, unpleasant spoiled. Um, although there is another character called Anne, who's rich and spoiled, and it, it is nasty. Um, but yes, uh, Peter Bowles plays her husband. And uh, yes, you think Peter Bowles, right? He's in for the duration. No, he isn't. He he uh, dies of the plague on the first episode. Um, and that first episode, I have to say, um, I I didn't see it until 1992 when I watched a dreadful copy. I think it was a monitor. Uh, it was recorded off a monitor or something. I, I, it was a bootleg copy. And it, I, but even at that quality, I knew. But it was interesting because I was aware of the premise and, of course, I remember the title sequence so well. But those first three episodes, when Terry Nation gets a new idea, he really goes for it. You know, with his Doctor Who's and some of his Blakes, he tended to be a bit, um, you know, sort of spoke standard tick boxy and and a little bit predictable, especially with his Dalek stories, um, with the exception of Genesis. Um, even some of the elements of Genesis actually have... Anyway, um 
the first three episodes of this and the first three episodes of Blake Seven are absolutely superb in my opinion because they really hit the ground running. They establish the characters. They enjoy the concept and really get the drama going. And the first episode, the, the Fourth Horseman, is so haunting um, in its and, the, and it's shot really nicely as well. I think that's Penn and Roberts. But there's you know there's there's nice things where he. There's a long shot from above when she goes into a church. She, her village, she Abby, uh, wakes up in the village and finds that everyone's dead, basically. Um, and uh, you know, she's like, oh God, please don't let me be the only one. It's, it's such a, ooh. And, um, and of course, she goes to the boys' school uh, that she uh, uh, son was at, and and all the boys are dead. Um, which is, it's a very harrowing f- first couple of episodes. Are very harrowing. Um, you also have Jenny Richards, who's the the secretary, who's bang in the middle of London, where it's it's absolutely terrible, um, and she's her housemate dies, and she she has to get out of London. And it's actually a really frightening London, where it's, which has turned very feral because everyone's just dropping in the streets. And there's particular, um, you know, I've jumping ahead, way ahead. I've decided. Uh, last year we decided to rewatch the whole series because the current situation is is ominously um is rather ominous to it and there's a there's a scene in hospitals where they're and trying to inoculate everybody and the doctor on duty sort of shrugs his shoulders that you might as well be squirting water into that we don't know what we're dealing with and it's a mutant strain and of course these words are starting to crop up now more and more now again um and you also have Tom Price, uh, who's one of the played by Tavern Thomas, who's the Welshman in everything. He's a wonderfully roguish character who's kind of like the out for himself character. Greg Preston, who turns up in the second episode, who's very much a prototype version of Avon from Blake's 70s. He's got a growly and kind of not quite as self seeking as Avon. And uh, but he's quite of tough and a little bit little bit on the mean side. Um, but very realistic, uh, you know, and there are parallels actually. Ian Mc- he's played by Ian McCulloch, who is became best, better known for the um, Italian zombie films. Um, and he, he actually later on, I'll come to this later, but he later on did some writing for, for the survivors, did three episodes and felt it like Paul Darrow as Avon. He feels he, he felt very loyal to, Terry Nation about the original concept and and kind of was very defensive of, of Terry Nation's imagining of it um, and uh, unlike uh, Paul Darrow he actually successfully managed to get three episodes of his own authorship on, on the screen um, but yeah um, that first series is very well structured um, it takes them a while to get their base which is the Hampton Court um, sorry before we go on to Hampton Court my memories of Survivor. Now, this is this isn't going to take very long because I um, I think after series one I I just kind of avoided it, uh, thinking it was going to be a bit too scary. So I was a bit of a wuss, you have to remember. Um, and I I think I must have seen more than I than I remember. But I remember lots of open fields and which could be any episode. Can be, and um, I do remember the one episode I do remember, which I did actually watch some of was um, gone to the angels, which is one where they, they find a house with a sort of paranoid man with a gun, which turns out to be Peter miles who had just done a stint as in Genesis of the Daleks on Dr. Who. 
Now, I remember Nider from Doctor Who with the character he played, but I, I, didn't, I don't think I twigged it was the same bloke. Uh, but I remember him kind of accidentally shooting Greg and saying, oh, God, I'm sorry, you know, and being quite neurotic. And, and at the, the end bit where they, they go up to some religious commune that, that dies of the plague, I remember that bit too. Uh, but really, apart that and Open Fields is my only memory. And the music is the main thing that I, I, I took with me on that. And I remember my sister and I staying at Lodge Farm in Talgar that that year uh, which this first series would have been still been airing when we were there but um we would we sat we you know we had uh, obviously separate beds but we we had be- uh, bedrooms together as the children and uh, we sat sat up in bed trying to sing the theme music <laughs> um, <laughs> that's another silly memory i've got but that that is it i, I don't think i and went anywhere near the the show uh, on the, se- the subsequent two seasons. That's nineteen seventy six and seventy seven. I don't remember them on at all. It's just that first one I remember. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's usually um, it's often the other way round. Where it's like with, with me and Blake Seven, I I don't really remember it until it was about to finish. I don't really remember it till season four. I was I was too young to have seen any of Survivors the first time around. So it was probably when it started coming out on video that I first saw. Any episodes? I mean, I made a conscious effort to get them when I was when because I was impressed enough with the dreadful copy I saw that oh yeah, I'd like to experience the whole series. And then of course they they dillied and dallied about the sec putting out the second series. You very kindly got me a, a, a I think two survivors tapes for my birthday or was it Christmas? Um, yes, yeah, so you got you got me the the last three of series one, and I think somebody either you or Keith got me the first two episodes, but then uh, uh, on on um, TV Zone there was a big thing with Ian McCulloch was reviewing episodes and he was sort of saying, oh, you know, and they were talking about tapes which never actually came out, and then the whole lot, uh, all three seasons came out in the noughties on DVD, a very handsome DVD package, proper proper booklet. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm only sorry Blake Seven wasn't as well. You see, with Blake Seven, I um, two years later, I I approached that completely differently because it was marketed in a completely different way, um, uh, and because I, I was the sort of child that would dwell on things. So, so the end of the world, yeah, would have bothered me. Um, uh, but thing thing is, that there was a new science fiction series. It had spaceship, had looked at what looked like some robots, uh, and of course, although Star Wars, I'd only seen a few clips of Star Wars at that point. Um, I was very Doctor Who had sort of taken its place on the throne as far as my favourite program is concerned by seventy eight, and uh, you know, I thought when I first saw Blake Seven, I oh, here's like something like Doctor Who, only at a, a sense, you know, a, an adult kind of zigkazi time. Um, so I, I remember, by contrast, I saw Blake from the first episode. There's very, very few episodes I missed. And I, I remember them all very well. The Survivor sort of leads the way, um, and other series, you have like the Quatermass conclusion, um, which has lots of scenes in a, a ruined yeah. uh, London. And then, of course, you have in eighty one, you have oh yes, the day of the Triffids TV version, which of course that existed as a book for for years. But I think um, those scenes of of um, yeah. desolation uh, scared me yeah. enough when I saw it in eighty one. So there's no way. No, I I, 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 I didn't go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was not so much 
seeing um, unpleasant dead bodies, which I think was probably my main thing when I was six years old, hence Planet of Evil. Um, uh, but I think it was the whole disconcerting concept and the, I think disconcerting is the word I'm just as I've said before I, I was my own Mary Whitehouse really I, I kind of decided for myself I, I don't remember my parents ever saying don't watch this it's too frightening um I I you know I would watch it and say it's too frightening um and uh but no I, I as going back to the series as such um characters came and characters went um the first series is assembles uh, there's um a character called um vic thatcher who's uh in in a quarry a very good looking quarry i'm sure doctor who must have used it at some point and the, he gets a, a, a tractor falls on his legs and crushes them and he's got a sort of rich bitch kind of girlfriend who le- abandons him and terry scully who's has been in lots of telefantasy shows plays him and it's so realistic that it's actually quite painful to watch because you know he really goes for it um and his character does return they get they have to go back to the quarry he's uh, the, the rich bitch um t- uh, tells tells greg that he's died you know this this guy's died and they go back into it sorry for spoilers you know <laughs> kind of but, um and they go they, they go back for it and find he's still alive and and believing that everyone's abandoned him and they they adopt him into the the group and there's a whole thing where the rich bitch and comes back and they they have a confrontation um so there was an interesting character in vic uh, unfortunately terry scully couldn't carry on because he had a nervous breakdown i think and they got uh, hugh walters to play him now hugh walters uh, he he does a lot of comedy he did a lot of comedy bless him he's, he's gone now but he is a sort of character that, that you know he tends to play effeminate men and he actually gave it a really good shot um and i, I he just wasn't terry scully <laughs> when they got to the crucial episode um with the w- w- revenge which was the the one um it's yeah it, he does very well but you just think what a shame terry scully just couldn't do just a few more um there's the themes in the episode i mean terry nation tends to do the more action ones um there's several dictatory kind of characters that pop up from the time to time again you were saying about big names and you think they're going to go on and on uh george baker in the second episode as arthur wormsley who's one of the main kind of uh first sort of petty dictators that we meet who kind of wants to control everything um oddly his story sort of doesn't isn't carried through they they run away from him and uh there's various things sort of hints that um he, he you know he's still around but they never really go back to him as glenn owen plays a rather good one in, in a later one uh and of course there's a very kind of harrowing episode where they they have a murder in their community which is now set in hampton court and um the finger points at uh, someone who's sort of special needs um and they decide to execute him and now it became very controversial for the cast it's actually you know, obviously it's it's quite you know it's it, it makes challenging that one of my favorite episodes um, of the whole series yeah it, it's excellently done and uh it's interesting because the i think clive exton the guy who wrote it it was went did it under a different name or something and um yeah it's a very strong episode because it's so likely to happen as well and it's it gets you going um and it's because greg is the one that pulls the trigger he he kind of alienates you in the in the sense that you know he's 
is a little bit too tough for his own good and he, he never I know I'm certainly as a viewer I never he, he's a useful interesting character to see his journey but I never quite warmed to him because he had that sort of slightly ruthless streak a bit like Avon but unlike Avon he has you know you don't have that sort of endearingly self-serving kind of one-liners <laughs> but um you know and also A.M. McCullough's got that great bulldog chewing a wasp type face where you know and he, he nobody quite say do as you're told and shut up <laughs> like, like Ian McCulloch does he's a growly um but uh he yes I mean he's he became um unhappy with some of the the way that because you had the the action ones with Terry Nation um and you had the it was like the um, people wanting something after them and chasing them with guns and things like that and you had the the thoughtful ones with Jack Ronda whose daughter um, who plays a little girl in the um, the, sh- the show along with Stephen Dudley who's the other child who is um, the producer Terence Dudley's son uh, Terence Dudley seems to have seems to divide people a little bit because um, when he did um, Doomwatch he, he sort of took it in the show in a direction which Kit Pedler and Jerry Davis didn't like. And indeed, um, with this one, he'd, he took it in a direction that Terry Nation didn't like. Um, I have to say, I don't think he ruined either show. I think, um, I'll, I'll, as we go along, I'll, I'll, I'll expand a little bit. But I, it's difficult to kind of see where the originators are coming from in terms of... It, every show has to develop and and change a little bit um and i don't think the decisions that terry nation terry, terry dudley did were necessarily harmful to the show the either shows um also i yeah i mean I, I, and you can't have cowboys and indians every week otherwise you know you kind of you you're sort of devaluing the series now jack ronda who were tended to write the more gentle, thoughtful episodes with communes and things like that? He didn't like the the violent side, and he eventually left because there was too much kind of action turned towards more action and violence, which is ironic because Terry Nation uh, alienated himself from the show because there wasn't enough. <laughs> so Terry Dudley managed to fall out with two men on exactly the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> for exactly the opposite reasons um, and that is my understanding having read things um, but anyway um, yes you had Law and Order which I think you and I both agree was one of the best episodes um, Do you uh, turning it around do you have a, another favourite episode that comes to mind no I mean that is the standout one for me I mean the rest of it is I, I just you know, I like the, uh, the you're just watching the progression of it's all interesting and but um, that one, I think, stands out because it's sort of such a um, uh, poignant, or sort of, you know, it's, it, it, you end up having your own opinion, and 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 it makes you sort of uh, root for the episode even more. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I just uh, just enjoy watching the story progress. Yeah, sort of and yeah. you had you had. Um, Arthur, who's a, a, an old businessman whose who's secretary is there, and he starts out incredibly pompous, but after a few episodes you realise he's, he's kind of actually got a lot to offer. Um, and he's kind of... He has a, a, a journey. There's a, Oh, I can't remember her name. Um, 
the little old lady that we used to be married to, George Pravda, who's a Russian in everything. Oh, Maria, Hannah Maria Pravda. I can't remember her character. Um, oh, uh, Emma. That's right. Uh, um, she, 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 she was a sweet character. Um, as I say, one of them gets killed off, um, and that's the the episode with dear old Barney, the Law and Order. Uh, what's quite nice is Law and Order is followed by the Future Hour, which is a sort of more of an action Terry Nation. There's a nutter who wants to take over kind of thing, but it's very nicely done, and it, the two work nicely on a on a disc, on a tape together, and it brings Tom, Tom Price, Tom Price, who turned out to be the murderer. Um, he it brings his story to an end as well. Even though later on, when you go into series two, you realise, actually, I wish they'd kept him on because they replaced him with a very similar character. But the other character I liked um, that they brought in just before the trial, you know, the the Law and Order episode is Paul Pittman, played by a very laid back um, Chris Tranchell. Um, He's a really good, he's like a hippie character with a, with a, a hat and a nice line in humour. And, you know, he's kind of just what the survivors needed because he's, he's kind of, as practical as Greg, but he's a lot more humorous. And um, the, he he was dropped. Well, no, he wasn't dropped. Actually, he, I think Chris Chanchell chose to leave at the beginning of series two because he didn't feel the character was developed. And I thought, well, give him a chance. You know, he's he's got a lot going for him. And I would have liked to have actually seen Paul actually gone on to to the end of the series. To be honest, I thought he he, he had a lot going for him. Um, the series you also had Jimmy Garland who played by um, Richard Heffer who played the romantic sort of swashbuckling sort of rebel hero who's trying to gain back his his country estate and that gives Abby a love interest um, which he reappears at the end of the series having won his battle but um, he says to Abby you know oh you can team up and look for your son who she's been looking for her son all this time and um, and she sort of says she's tempted and then at the end, she said, no, I've got to go back and help these people. And it's, I don't know, because Caroline Seymour then left. I think she was dropped because they felt she was too strong, which I argument just would be shoved down the toilet these days. Um, but I don't think she wanted to leave. And I don't know whether she, um, what point she knew she was going, because the series seemed to indicate that yet we're carrying on with Abby because at the end of the show there's a hint the end of the first series there's a hint that you know they might be finding Peter her son and you thought all right we'll tune in next time of course she's gone series two and um so yes I I don't know I'm I'm undecided she she was a bit like Blake from Blake 7 you know because she she she, we kicked off with her um but the series survives without her what would it, what would have the show been like with Abby carrying on? I think this is probably I haven't heard any of them yet, but this is probably what the big finish survivors are because I think they've got Caroline C- Caroline Seymour on. I can't remember what they do, what, how do they explain her not being there if she isn't written out. I can't remember. I think they yeah. I mean, it was pretty weak. I think they said she'd just gone after Peter or something. Um, and actually, if if they had kind of. I I um what one thing that I I don't believe that Terry Studley spoiled the shows. I think he he did take them in a logical way. It might not be uh, amenable to his, their originators, but I think he he did do a good job in developing them. What he's not so good at is 
um, dealing with the regular cast. Because um, I know that with Doomwatch, he he got rid of um, the characters of um, oh, Gene Tran's character, uh, Faye Chantry and, and, and Jeff in the series two. And there was the word of explanation, but it wasn't very convincing. <laughs> you know, they'd got them out of the way because there was this big crisis and they would have blabbed to the press, which I, did, I couldn't see any either of them blabbing to the press. Um, so I, yeah, he's not very good at either sort of offloading people because I don't think he told, he's just wrote them to them and said their services aren't required, according to Gene. Um, so I, again, beginning of series two, we have this rather upsetting thing where the they can't use the um, Hampton Court anymore because they, and they they there's several of the characters they kill off in a fire, um, and which is harrowing enough in itself. But it's really when you get to the episode, it's actually really badly done because uh, it, it you don't see any of the well, obviously you, you won't see the characters again, but. Um, it's kind of the fire is done in such a way where you, it's, it's little bits of fire and shouting fire and, and there's a bit of somebody who could be anybody uh, uh, wheeling around uh, pretending to be Vic. And, um, and the next thing is they've, they've all moved to a barn and they're kind of thinking, oh dear, you know, and, um, and, they're sh- they, and you see the odd bits of charred wood. Now, even with the BBC budget, I think they could have done the characters more justice. And there's a lot of sympathetic characters that just get burned to death. And you think, well, that's horrible. That's that's a horrible way to write them out. So I think they... Yeah, I think uh, Emma, Sharman, the, the secretary, um, Vic, uh, they, 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 they got a little bit shafted there. Um, it's almost as if they... Oh, we've got too many characters. They've all gone up in smoke. Um Series two concentrated on a sort of commune um, called White Cross, I think, and um, they brought back a character who was one one off in series one. That's Dennis Lil's um, Charles Vaughan, who's sort of uh, trying to get a baby boom going. He's he's sort of again. He's a I think he's a nicer character than than Greg. Um, he's yeah, and the two kind of try and. They they fight for centre stage a bit in series two. Series two is very much much of a muchness. It's it's more based on the commune. There's more episodes concerning the characters within the commune, and I must admit, yes, occasionally it does get a bit stale. Um, the exceptions to these are Lights of London, which I think I've sat you down in front of many times. Again, you go back to that. I would have liked to have seen the show go back to the cities or or kind of shown the, the the i liked it when the show showed the remains of civilization and they go back to they they kidnap they, this the the um one of the new characters ruth who's played by somebody completely different to the last episode of the first series and then is played by somebody infinitely more sexy in the second series and um they kidnap her and they take take her and it's a great cracking two-parter and they 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 sort of there's a whole community in in london and they great use of the London Underground um, obviously the BBC had sort of softened the rules a bit since Web of Fear where they wouldn't at one point where they weren't allowed to film down there but they, uh, I think it's an op- and the, the deep tunnels and cammed and there's some, and, and a great um, central performance from again there's a dictatory character called um, uh, uh, no uh, Manny played by the old British 
film actor Sidney Taffner, who's is great in the part. He's he's like somebody's kind of dad gone mad, you know, sort of quite patronising but um, dangerous at the same time. And um, isn't there a, yeah. a, ner- a nurse character? That's right. Yes, yeah, an old Scottish nurse called Nessie. I think she's called Nessie. A lovely character. It's a lovely crafted episode. But that is the one that broke the camel's back as far as Jack Ronda's concerned, because he wrote it and he didn't... Somebody rewrote the end and he really didn't like what they'd done with it and he didn't work on the show again. And I would love to... Now the, the trick, you know what I'm like for wanting to know behind-the-scenes trivia and, you know, sort of how, how things were done and what, why things happened. I would love to know why what they changed that made him so upset. I'd love to read a book about it at some point. Um, I think because Jack Ronda felt the show was going in a more too aggressive way, there's a shootout. It's a wonderfully exciting and well shot shootout at the end in the, in the underground where money sort of switches from being a menacing character to an all out shooting baddie. I think possibly, this is just my theory. Uh, maybe he was unhappy with the way they, they did that. And it became a shootout, and and uh, yeah, that's just my t- knowing on some of the things that I've read that he he commented on. But I think uh, it's one of the highlights of series two, Lights of London. I I think it's great, and it uh, Roger Lloyd Pack, who's one of those actors who I either is very good or a bit dodgy in things, and he is up there with and he's with his game fully raised, and he's he gives a good performance too. Um, as, um, uh, Nadim Sawala, who's a very well-known Indian actor, he's he's great in that, and yeah, and Michael um, David Troughton as, uh, as well. So yeah, it, and there's also a very good one set in a well, an army camp, which I think was done round about the Salisbury, um, uh, one of the Salisbury camps, um, where there's a sort of disciplined commune and Philip Maddox in that, and that's extremely good too. And Parasites with, which play um, where. Uh, Kevin McNally is there as a sort of psychotic escape prisoner and uh, apart from that it's a bit limp series two is series two uh, the season that Patrick Troughton's in yes actually Patrick Troughton's in one of the better episodes that's that he's in Parasites he's he plays this wonderfully gentle laid-back character that gets murdered by Kevin McNally and um also series two that that the second appearance from a character called Mina who's is a sort of it's an oddball female character that's a bit lonely. Now, she appeared in a previous episode called The Witch, uh, which is probably my, I have to say, no disrespect to any of the actors, it's probably my least favourite Survivors episode of all, because it's just sort of um, Hubert, who's the sort of Tom Price replacement, played uh, uh, wonderfully um, against type by John Arbonieri, um, uh, the local shepherd, uh, sort of coming on to her in a creepy sort of way and her resisting in advances and her saying she's a witch. It's like an episode of Benny Hill gone wrong. Um, I, you know, and it's, it's just uncomfortable to watch really. And, and a bit rushed. And, um, but what's interesting about two is what you're not told. And this is why I think the narrative of the, the regular character starts to unwind a bit because you don't see Arthur and then Arthur dies and you don't see him die. Um, and all sorts of new characters come in and um mina has a baby in her episode the witch and then when you see her again with patrick Chanton in parasites 
you see her pushing the pram, and when the character the camera pans round, and the pram is full of uh, branches and things that she's collected, sort of plants and things. And you think, and you don't, you don't see the baby again, and you think, what's what's happened to the baby? You know, has the baby died? In which case, I think the viewer has a right to know whether the baby's alive or dead. You know. And then you don't see Mina again. You're not told of a, 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 a sort of an infection that's going around. So did she die? You know, I, I, you don't... Characters are started and then dropped and you, you don't see what's happened. And there's a whole lot of youngsters that come at the end and they, they're all sort of hanging around the, the, the mill that's there and shagging each other. And, and there's, there's a whole, all their, their story doesn't continue on into series two. You know, we, we're just left in the assumption that... And there's also a vicar character... Um, played by Roy Herrick, who gets a whole episode all to himself, and and you know, the fact that they builds up the fact that he's a vicar, and do people need religion anymore? You know, it's a big questions. And then, um, as, you know, as usual, they portray the vicar as, as sort of a little bit indecided, and a little bit wavery, and a little bit weak. And then in Parasites, he he's they just bring him on to give a self sacrificing scene, which I thought. <laughs> It is. It, we haven't progressed for it. That's why it's nice to see shows like Father Brown, where where the the main character that has religion, but he's actually kind of leads it, and he's, you know, it's, you tune into him every week. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm mean, so it's a very mixed bag series too. I don't think there's yeah, there's just uh, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't quite have the punch of of one and later three, to be honest. Um, it's but as I say. Lights of London, The Chosen and Parasites are, are the best ones for me for, for that season. Um, Hubert, the shepherd, John Arbonieri character, is extremely irritating to start with. Um, I mean, it's a bit funny at times, but, you know, the game, they, they take his character and sort of run with it. And unlike with um, Tom Price, uh, the Tavern Thomas character, they actually do develop him and mild you know water him down a bit um but yeah so do, do you have any more thoughts on series two i do have a memory but i'm not sure what season it's from is there an episode where there's a um uh not or not a marksman what do you call them um, oh yes a, a gunman a, a, a sniper now yes i'm glad you reminded me about that because that's the first episode that ian mcculloch wrote he uh Apparently, he's in an interview. He said, "You know, sort of he, uh, he said to Terence Studley, you know, can I try and my hand at episodes? You know, and he said, yeah, I want, if you if you if I like it, I'll buy it. If I don't, I'll, I'll throw it in the bin.' And um, that was a friend in need, which is the uh, first one he did. Now, I again, I think he was deliberately trying to get back to the more more action Terry Nation stuff, but I think I think the general concept, I I. You don't learn enough about the gunman, or you know, it's just kind of blah blah blah, and it's killed killed at the end, and you find you know there's a twi- there's a twist, but it's not really a good enough twist to, and you don't know why they're doing it. And um, but the episode, you can see that he's kind of trying to redress the deficiencies in the show because the dialogue's good, and everybody in the regular cast gets a good bite of the cherry, which is what you need, um, and. But this is by he did three, and this is by f- uh, the one uh, friend in need being the first one, and it's by far the weakest of the three. But then I think he he kind of you can see, or see him almost see him learn as he goes along. Um, 
And three, the other thing with three, there's Charles Vaughan's girlfriend in it is um, a, quite a charming character called Pet, um, who's played by the American actress Lorna Lewis, who sadly died a few years ago. <coughs> and uh, she's she's a lovely character. Um, and, as I say, Charles Vaughan's a lot, although series three, he became, becomes a little bit more abrasive and a bit more impatient as, as time goes on. But, you know, if he's... Whilst he's in the commune, he's actually, you know, you, you, you join up with him if you were, if you're on your own, you know, and you, you want to join up with him. He seemed quite friendly. Um, where Greg is mild down a little bit, but um, he, he, he bugs off. So, um, there's this Norwegian character called Ingrid who, Ingrid? Is it Ingrid? Oh, I should know. Agnes. No, sorry, Agnes. I don't know where Ingrid came from. Um, but she she flies over in a balloon. Her father's killed, and you know they they they've got some industry going in in uh, Norway. And um, they've that's the sort of cliffhanger of series two, and you, you just feel a little bit short changed, really. Um, but uh, yeah, they. I think there's general feeling that you know it's sort of it's it's lo- it lost its punch, and so series three kind of has them all Greg goes off is is, is missing because um, Ian McCulloch didn't sort of really he didn't he wanted out of the show and they said we you know um, just come back to to sort of write you can even write your own episode which I think was a masterstroke because his last episode is really really good um, and I yeah he wrote um, he came back and wrote two because most of the time Greg's missing that uh, you see him in episode two a little learning which is a really good episode it's got some cracking ideas it's sort of like a lord of the flies thing with the kids in charge and sort of um you know playing with the adults and um there's some nice bits in it um it does make out greg to be a bit of a brainiac in terms of because he comes up with the medical solution to something which i think is stretching it a little bit but the the cast you've got wonderful um sylvia coleridge who's the old lady and everything um and it's a really good episode and he isn't it's he isn't uh a shade you know he isn't it doesn't shy away from sparing himself because he, he has to run around a lot he's he's um held upside down at one point by the kids and um yeah there's there's plenty of interesting things in it um so yes it's a it's a much improved episode there's also first episode is okay it's the only one that terence studley wrote um and it's kind of it's said an army camp where they're doing penicillin and um but the first really cracking one i think of series three is law of the jungle by martin worth um which has um Brian Blessed in it as a as a butcher, who's kind of a, again a, a bit of a feudal character, but I don't know. Brian Blessed, as usual, inhabits the character and really kind of, and it's set in by a railway line as well, and it shows the him to be vulnerable as well, and I, I, it's really 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 good. Um, so it's definitely one of my favourites. Um, uh, yeah, I think the idea of getting them back on the road again was quite a good one. They're trying to link up with various communities. Um, there's a rabies one, which is apparently great, great big one with fans. I don't know much about the survivors' fans, other survivors' fans. Um, I think it's really good. Maurice Perry, who's a very good, dry sort of actor, um, is extremely good in it. But And the atmospheric... Um, at filming in the snow but I think 
it kind of runs out of steam towards the end as Charles is running away from pursuers. Um, and it's, yeah, you, it runs out of steam a bit, but it's not too bad. I mean, I think I have seen them all. It's just been a long time. I mean, I do own the set, but it has been a long, a long time as far as, as, um, as specific episodes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as, as, you're, as you're talking about them, um, it's all sort of familiar, but I, I find it harder to sort of separate them as to... It's like almost for me. It's like almost like one long movie. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm I'm, I'm out geeking you here. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. It's, it's one of your. It's one of well, your, I think yeah. I don't know quite how far up it would be, but say um, Blake Seven, Sapphire and Steel, Doomwatch. But it's uh, I think it's probably somewhere in the top either ten or fifteen shows. Um, and it was nice to rediscover it in the nineties and well, in the nineties and noughties. Um, so it, I yeah, think there were times that I would, I would put it on and enjoy it more. Uh, maybe when I first saw it, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as as much. But as a, an older adult, um, yeah, it, it's more the sort of science fiction that that I I like. But it, because it's about characters and yes and it's about people and and that taps into other things i like and like even even some of the soap operas the old yeah. soap operas i like because it's more about people and it's not yeah about uh, monsters or aliens yes. uh, or spaceships and that's um, right it's a bit it's a bit more for uh, our, our you know for, for an older audience that's maybe. right and i've been watching as you say uh, it's nice to be able to w- watch the story progress and i i We've been watching it since well, since this last summer, and I've really you know every Wednesday, which is when it used to go out anyway. And I used to, I've, I've really kind of enjoyed our sort of looking forward to because Wednesday's my day off anyway, and, and sort of survivors at the end. Uh, we've got two more episodes to do, but to the end. But I, I remember enough of those to comment. But um, the other is generally the kind of move to find Greg, and they also find the parents of one of the kids um in one episode which is is quite a nice conclusion um it would have i suppose been nice to have had abby come back either for the last story you know the last series somewhere to bring her story to an end um and maybe one of the old baddies you know um they do um when you get to you also have an, another character I like called Frank Garner, who's a sort of like an elderly former headhunter who's in a, a like a, a, a they they live in a windmill community, and um, he he I think is very good. He's very intelligently written and played by uh, Edward Underdown, who's a sort of actor that um, Terence Studley used quite a lot in his series. Uh, he's a very interesting character, but he, he's there to fulfil a function, and he once he's done that he you know they give him a a sort of faulty pacemaker and they know that he's he hasn't got long um and i thought uh, it's rather a shame when he goes and they as a sort of greg replacement they get um richard Dystart uh as the alec the scottish engineer who takes them up to scotland in the last episode now <laughs> one of the things being a telefantasy fan one of the things you kind of enjoy is watching characters together that have been in uh, together in other things and the episodes with Alec and Hubert are quite amusing because you've got John Albanieri and which William Dystart. And in the Doctor Who story, Ambassadors of Death, um, 
William Dystart was the the henchman, the main henchman that was going around nicking nuclear things and and sending the ambassadors to kill people. And, and John Albanieri was playing his boss. So I wonder if they sort of spoke about that when they kind. Of, um, but no, it's uh, that was you know that and um, but no, they've they. Um, they sort of progress the story and it moves away from Greg, but Greg comes back for the one last, the last laugh is the last episode that, uh, uh, where, you know, how unique is this? Um, me and McCulloch got to write himself, got to kill himself off. Um, and I don't think I've ever known anybody else do that. That they've, they've been able to write their own last episode. And I, if last laugh's anything to go by, I think more people should do it because, um, he does it in a way that isn't, you know, he's, he's sort of, um, he, he puts it to good use the way he dies, but is not heroic at all, uh, which is quite nice. And, you know, he, he sort of, uh, um, and there's a lot, he gets to dwell on the fact that he's going to die, which I quite like as well, because that's very survivors. It's, it's grim. It's, 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 uh, realistic and um it's really well done and uh, he was very happy with it apparently so uh yeah i, I think it's good that's the last previous one we rewatched, and uh yeah i think it's great um and then you get the three last episodes which lead up to the finale along with the king which uh, introduces the character that is mentioned in last laugh but it hasn't been seen yet which is the captain very dry wonderful dry villainous performance from Roy Marsden and um, it, that deals with the sort of getting the civilization back to life printing returning money getting bringing money back and um, the captain is Roy Marsden's character sort of tries to get in on that and um, he's uh, it's it's a shame he couldn't they couldn't have extended his story to the last episode because I think he would in the last episode they will go to Scotland and switch on the hydroelectric power and i think it would have been nice if the captain had sort of got away and and sort of followed them up to scotland to interfere with their plans or take over um because all they do at the end of uh, long live the king is sort of lock him up and say oh well we'll, we'll put him on trial or something which is rather a a, a, a duff payoff uh, i don't I, i'm not i'm not dissing martin worth who i i think is a great writer um but I, yeah it's a little bit disappointing um but it's you know they acknowledge that greg's dead in that and and they go off to scott lovely filming in scott killen which valley and i have been to um with the, the real hydroelectric power station and um, there's a character that's established earlier on in the season who becomes a traitor and sort of gives the antagonism to the last episode but you get the feeling even though you've got ian cuthbertson as a guest star you get the feeling that the last episode of power is missing something um it's missing a, a link to the very beginning it's you know um it may be the the regulars i can't even because i haven't i'll be re-watching it in a couple of weeks time but i can't actually even remember whether how many of the i think is jenny in it? yeah jenny's definitely in it um jenny becomes changes a bit she she's actually very, very nice in the first season and because she has a baby between series one and two. No, no, actually, she has a baby at the beginning of series one, two. And um, she's not given a great deal to do. Um, when you do see her, she's all stroppy and, and kind of, I suppose, postnatal. But 
uh, but when you when she gets on the road and gets plenty of action she's she's still not actually she she actually isn't isn't particularly you know she she's she's a bit of a no, it's something about a character that sort of takes a downward turn, I think, in terms of likability. Um, but no, it's, it, the, the, you see them develop, which is nice. But um, I think there's a few characters that should have stayed. Um, difficult to know what to think about Greg, because he, he, he was a very watchable character, but you didn't particularly warm to him. Um, so I think the way he went was actually rather well done. And... Um, and yeah you kind of when you think about what happened in law and order you kind of think oh you know karma <laughs> to a degree you know um but it's the same with saffron steel because they they did a few things that were a little bit morally dodgy and you know when they got theirs you you thought well that's why that's the way it goes but and so survivors ended um with the power going on, it's you know, and that's apparently that's really wasn't what Terry Nation wanted. Um, but I think three series is enough for a concept like that. And I think if it had gone, it didn't quite have the razzle dazzle entertainment value of Blake Seven. And I, yeah, I, I, I think I don't know, I've never quite got my head around exactly what Terry Nation wanted from those you think he i think he wanted to take it back to a more medieval thing which is what they did in series two and it was it didn't really cut the thing you just wondered you know it's all very well jumping up and down and saying you know they ruined it did you really kind of it was it you know what what really did you want to to, to do with this and was it was it any better than what they did you know i i feel me thinks the uh, Dalek creator protests too much um, but I, the same with Kip Pad and Jay Davis I, I, I can't really see that he, he, he ruined the show uh, ruined Doom Watch either as I say just the sort of individual characters you think the way he de- dealt with them you think oh, you know they, they got the thin edge of the wedge really at some point but uh, and a very entertaining show though and something I can stick an episode on Whenever I'm, you know, whatever mood I'm in, it's one of those shows. There's, there's and, and it's still how much of an influence it it, it was um, to to some more recent series like Walking Dead. It's hard to say, but there's a lot of survivors in Walking Dead. Take the zombies away, and it's basically uh, the <laughs> yeah. survivors. They, I mean, these these days, you need. <laughs> you know they they, they they feel they have to put the stick, stick oh, zombies dear. in um you can't just sort of uh, um, make it like survivors <laughs> hats uh, off to terry nation though he really did tap into a an a evergreen um concept really because you know they're still talking about it now it's it's so relevant to our situation with covid now it's actually really quite it's difficult to ignore it um you know because of obviously it hasn't moved as quickly as the death but by god you know um relevant or what um it really is you know it could still you got the feeling it could still happen because we haven't you know we've got the vaccine but we ha- we haven't actually we haven't actually kicked it out yet so um it, it's it's 
It's quite unsettling at times, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was far too young in the 70s to have appreciated. Like you say, it's more, it's not monsters, it's not a robot, you know, it's it's sort of grown-up drama. Um, and I like it for it now, but I don't think I was, would have been ready for it then. And I, I enjoyed the reboot as well. I, I was an avid watcher of that, and, and I, don't, I think it ended before its time. And in fact, yeah. I, I wish... Once they decided they weren't coming back from season two, they should have given it a, a final a episode, yeah, rather than because it ended on quite a exciting point, which was never resolved. Which um... uh, the truth be known, I would like to at some point. I don't know if you've got it. Have you? The I think I, I think I have somewhere. I wouldn't mind sitting down and watching that properly because we did the first two series, and I think I, I think we were a little bit kind of. Um, you know, I suppose because we were loyal to the, the original, um, we were, you know, it, it, it maybe it didn't, I, there was too many things that disappointed, but um, I think it was more kind of Ali didn't really want to carry on with it, but I would have given it some more, um, you know, sort of, uh, I would have been prepared to have given it a bit more, because it, I, I, was it a, an adaption of... Terminations, I do sort of like a, it was certainly based on Terminations. Yeah, but then idea. I don't know. And you it, had some of the same characters, only. Uh, yeah, I don't know quite where it went on its own way um, by the time yeah. it was got into its second season and things. But yeah, um, but I remember, um, yeah, enjoying it. Or I'll have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I would be quite prepared to sort of, um, yeah, give it give it a whirly whirl. Um, because, like I say, we only we only saw two episodes of it. So, I, I, mean, I certainly one thing I wouldn't want to see really reboot wise is when I I think I we tuned into the the um, rebooted tomorrow American Tomorrow People, and that really was dreadful. I mean, they were trying to make it so gangstery and so dark, and uh, this isn't the Tomorrow People. <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it, you had them being doing violent things as well, which the Tomorrow People never did. So, uh, but no, I'm, but Survivors, yeah, and even also, I wouldn't mind. Maybe at one point, I'll get one of the CDs of Big Finish because that's got a lot of the original cast. Um, and I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to see what they did with that. Um, so yeah, there's. I think there's there's life in it, yet. Um, I think Terry Nation did do a book where which finished Abby's uh, story, um, and had her meet Peter, and Peter didn't recognise her or shot her or something. You know, and it was it all ended quite tragically. I thought to myself, well, why didn't he end series one like that? Um, <laughs> you know, and and that would have been the end of Abby's story. It would have been much neater than sort of. Uh, there's a wafery kind of thing that they did in the end, um, but no, I, 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 it's a cracking, cracking show. And thanks, I, as as this is RTA, um, I would like to say a big thank you to Lisa, who taped a lot of episodes I was seeing for the first time of UK Gold in the in the nineties, and I had got me my viewing of all bar one. I think they didn't show one. Uh, didn't show the penultimate one as series two, but I, I rewatched all of the others to her UK Gold copies. So it was it was nice to see. Well, thanks for um, sharing your memories, and uh, oh, pleasure. It really makes me uh, want to go back to it and, and, and watch it again sometime soon.
thanks once again to Paul and Nick for that. Yes, thank you. Yes. And that's almost it. Yes. One more piece to go then. Yes. So we'll do the thank yous at the end. Mm-hmm. But now you and me will take a look at... David Nixon's Magic Box. <laughs> Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. Have you got a magic box? <laughs> no. David we, Nixon has. David Nixon's got a magic box, hasn't he? I have to be careful how I say that because yes. it sounds a bit saucy, doesn't it? Because how did you say I should say it? David Nixon's magic box. Magic box. Yeah, you don't. You don't. <laughs> that went very poor, Daniels. <laughs> magic box. <laughs> you don't forget between magic and box because that does make it. If you've got the emphasis on box, it does so much. Right. So you've been on a bit of a David Nixon spree haven't yes. you is that the word yeah spree's a good spree's word. a good word yeah. and it all started when you got these abc nights in discs yes didn't you because which... each one has a here's david nixon which yeah. is a 10 minute series a 10 minute series it's a series of 10 minute episodes yeah. that he did for abc where he he's got an audience and he does a little bit of magic and he's talking to the camera and it's immensely engaging. Yeah, so these date from 1963, and he's doing yes. like sort of close-up stuff, yes. isn't he? Yes. You know, just just slay- always thrilling, never embarrassing. Indeed, slay of hand, slay of hand, <laughs> slay of hand. He said, uh, but that was enough to to whet your appetite, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. So then we inevitably go back to the network uh, network DVD site mm-hmm. and see what else is available. And David Nixon's magic box. <laughs> runs from 1970 to 71 yes and then he does another series after that david nixon's magic hour mm, indeed but series one and series three are complete yes uh but series two is a bit devastated yes and nine episodes are missing so yes. you, you get 18 episodes mm-hmm. plus there are some christmas ones yes on a special special yeah, release special aren't release, they? yeah yeah, yeah. But uh, one of those is, is Magic Hour. Yeah. So. But it's not just David Nixon, is it? No, no. It's um, it's got a proper 70s variety feel, isn't yeah. it? It, it? It's the full range of, of variety, really. Yes. And although there is a lot of magic in yeah. there, there's a bit of comedy and, mm-hmm. shall we say, novelty acts. Yeah, novelty acts. Um, magicians from other countries, uh, shadow people shadow people <laughs> or people who are shadows <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll get on to them but yeah it's, it's almost like the it or itv's version of um the good old days mm. in a way and there's a lot of anita harris yes for the there? first first two series yeah. she's not in the third series she gets replaced by ali bongo in the third series <laughs> is the regeneration scene no uh but one of the things that I like is right from the start, mm. you actually get more David Nixon for your money than perhaps you thought, as, as there are two yeah. David Nixons, There are aren't two they? David Nixons, because right from uh, his shows in the 60s, he does this thing where he's talking to himself. Yeah. Um, in Early in like, his shows in the 60s for the BBC, 
it's him on a screen. In this, it's him in a mirror or him on a blue screen. In his dressing room dressing before room. the show. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. They, they do a little thing where they like might pass each other a handkerchief yeah, through the mirror or something. Like, I have to say, it's quite well done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, they, how they get away with it. Because this is the mm-hmm. very early days of, you of know, CSI, CSO, isn't yeah. it? Oh. Or blue screen or whatever it or is. Chroma key. Yeah. Because or... it's a Thames series. Yes. And they're experimenting. Mm-hmm. with effects and and they get away with quite yeah. a lot i think yeah. um i think there was one of the later ones with the baby elephant wasn't quite so convincing was um, it no no but hey but, but then there's more of an area to get fringing on in that yeah. so i mean some of some of the guests are very familiar some yes. some less so but let's mm-hmm. just run through a few names okay so you've got ray allen and lord charles yeah i always saw it let ray allen because yeah. I don't really, I may have mentioned this before, I don't like ventriloquists. No. you got Billy Dainty. Yeah. He was quite fun. Yeah, wasn't he was, he? yeah. Because yeah. he did something with Anita Harris where he was a playing card, yes, wasn't he? Yes, like, like the um, the Jack of Hearts or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I did cheer when Norman Barrett's performing Guards <laughs> came yeah, on. Yeah, we laughed at that far too much. Yeah. And I don't think people remember Norman Barrett these days no. uh, so much because he, he was very much associated with circusy things because he was a mm-hmm. ringmaster, wasn't yeah. he? And I sort of remember him vaguely um, from the days of Charlie Caroli with Right Charlie. Can you whistle Lily the Pink? not bad at all and and especially don't forget right children <laughs> but yeah Norman Barrett's budgies would always turn up on things yeah yeah because earlier in that is it in that episode or is it one of the previous episodes they've got um the two female magicians with dogs uh, dogs yeah that made me feel uncomfortable yeah performing dogs yeah Especially if they've been dyed different colours. Yes, they've been dyed different colours and they were doing all sorts of things that didn't look very safe. Mm. And then you get the budgies and it's completely different with the budgies and I can't work out why because it should be, you should be uncomfortable with budgies being made to perform. But they looked like they were having more fun. Yeah, and well, they had to go, keep going down the slide, Especially didn't they? Especially Morris. Yeah, Morris, Morris the naughty budgie yeah. kept having to go another go on the slide. because <laughs> kept he, running back up and going down again. He was enjoying it, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's Anita Harris and Joe Brown singing mm-hmm. Leaving on a Jet Plane yeah. and I got terribly overexcited when mm-hmm. I went, oh hang on, that's the stock footage from the Faceless Ones, isn't yes. it? And I've cross-checked it on the face- Faceless Ones disc. And it is. And it is. Yeah. And it's in, it's in very good nick. Mm-hmm. I was almost a- sad they kept cross-fading to Anita Harris and Joe Brown because <laughs> I was going, I just want to watch this footage of the planes. But yeah. <laughs> uh, the 6th of April 1971 is just completely bonkers though isn't it i said to you you've got you've got jimmy young on a levitating piano i'm just thinking which one's that yeah Yeah. uh you've got bruce lacy who's got these robots Uh that he's made yeah uh, weird looking things and then he's got a dog washing machine (laughs) yes (laughs) which he goes which he goes through very very strange i mean he's associated with like it's a square world and weird mm-hmm. weird things like that. And then you've got Arthur Askey, and I said he's going to be a bee, isn't he? He wasn't, though. He was, he was a fish. He was a fish, yeah. <laughs> he sang like being a fish. Yeah, yeah uh, you've got Les Dawson and Stubby K. Yeah. And I'd never really seen Stubby K doing anything apart no. from Delta and the Banner Man. No, he was, it was, um, he was yeah, singing, wasn't he? Was he was singing a song from a musical, mm. apparently. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, going into series two, you've got Tux and his flying kitchen. And I said, that what the hell odd. is that? It was a bloke who'd look, he'd like throw plates and catch them on yeah, his head. Yeah, he had a tray, didn't he, on his head? And he got these plates and, and then stacked up plates and bowls. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you got Fred Emney. Yeah, um, it's the first time I've ever seen Fred Emney. He, he's one of those people that I've heard of, but I've yes. never actually seen him do anything. Yes. And there's, I don't think there's much that survives. No, probably not. Of, no. of Fred Emney, is no. there? Because um, there's the was it Fred Emney picks a pop or something, I which so, is yeah. mm. which is much sought after in certain circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I can't remember a name, but who who was the um the the lady magician? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Now, how how should we describe this? Um, what was her costume like? It was very small, skimpy, skimpy. Yeah, she had sort of. Um, I think it was like a bikini, wasn't it? Because she came down in a cloak. Yeah. And then got him out. Got yeah, and basically, <laughs> I think the reason she she got away with a slight hand is because she had her boobs on show. Yeah. So th- there was this. There's a bit of audience interaction because yes. yeah. she goes up to some bloke. In the in the front row, and sort of leans over. Yeah, gets him to. Uh, admittedly, he does very well, and he manages not to look straight at her chest. Yeah, most immediately. Yeah, some of the time the eye lines in the in the politer place. Yeah. But by the end of the trip, she's going, "Is this your car?" He's, he's like, going, I, don't know. "I can't remember." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got Amy McDonald because mm. um, she she returns in the Christmas one yes. to do exactly the same routine. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw those two quite close together, so yeah. we just like, oh, I've seen this. That's got a bit of unfortunate um, sort of material in yeah, it. Yeah, there's a lot of it. You you have to um, think when this was actually made because mm. there's a lot of casual sexism, um, not too much racism, but yeah. a bit of yeah sexism yeah. and a little bit of homophobia yeah. as well. So Mike Newman's quite funny. Not yeah. for Mike Newman so no. much is the fact that um, you've got this magic computer. Yeah. Which has got the tape, the same tape reels on it used in the set for the Ark in Space. I went and checked. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, I looked. Hang on, that's the same. Yeah. Tape. So that's nineteen seventy one. So, yeah. And now, who's the bloke with the talking helmet? <laughs> can, can, is it George Schlick? Yeah, George Schlick. He's he's so. got. Well, again, he's one of those people that I remember because mm-hmm. um, he's got a ventriloquism act. Now, what's yes. the other thing? It's a frog. It's a frog it's a thing, frog. isn't it? Yeah. And I do remember him from other shows. I think he mm. had a baby that sort of used to yeah. have a little bottle or something. He's, he, the baby doesn't appear, but he brings. He's, he's got this knight's helmet on a mm-hmm. stick, well, yes. on a stand, on a stand, and it's yeah. it's it's visor just yeah. flaps up, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I I looked and I'd not seen that for god knows how long yeah uh, i think he d- did turn up on a poor daniel's magic show in the mm-hmm. early 80s so yeah. that's probably the last time i ever saw him but the thing oh god that helmet i went yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah we have got jack douglas as well yes and ted rogers and ted rogers and i was i was trying to look at ted rogers's hair i don't think he has a wig at this point yeah it's really long. It's it's the early seventies and it's it's quite long. Yeah, so. and then Joe Caster. That was oh, creepy, that was wasn't weird. it? Weird. Yeah, I think we just sat through that in silence. Going, How do we what describe the hell is going it? On? Um, so this woman comes on yeah, she, with a puppet. It's like little. It's almost like a little ventriloquist doll, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
and it paints. <laughs> she puts it on a thing, yeah. and then it paints things yeah. with its hand. But then there's far too much kissing going on. It's picking it up and kissing it and putting it back down. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's but just... that was really cre- it was like full sort of terror of the autons, wasn't yeah. it? It was like creepy well, I, painting doll thing. I'd say it's more like Dead of Night. Yeah. You know, you've got the ventriloquist doll in that that comes alive. Yeah. Very, very odd. Yeah, mm-hmm. has to be seen to be believed, but that's yeah. true of a lot of the acts. Oh god, on this, yeah, isn't it? There's the I don't know who he is, but there's the guy that does the shadow puppets. Yeah. for about ten minutes. And Five just, minutes too much. Yeah, frankly. you're sitting there going, oh, yeah, you've done a buddy, right? Go. <laughs> well, I was going. I got to the stage where I couldn't tell if it was meant to be a rabbit or Winston Churchill. You know, <laughs> you go, God, we were easily amused in those days. Um, but you've also got assistance from Alastair, Alistair, haven't you? Alastair, yes, in the last series. Yeah, so who's Alastair? Alastair is Ali Bongo. But not as... Not as but not as Ali Bongo. No, not, as, not with the fez and no, the curly as, slippers. He's but. sort of got a, um, a footman. He looks, actually, as somebody said, like sort of a bit like, like Dandini out of yeah. Cinderella because he's got a footman's wig on and a coat and sort of little trousers and <laughs> things. And things. <laughs> but, yeah, of course, Ali, of course, is, you know, well known for his magical abilities yes. and yes. It, it, there is the link of course with the tomorrow people yeah, yeah. yeah. um but basically if somebody did magic in the 70s and they weren't a magician a bongo's name would be on the credits yeah uh george martin is sort of production associate and co-writer isn't yeah. he and again he's got links uh with all sorts of things like including paul daniel's magic show and mm-hmm. basil brush and all sorts yeah. of things i mean we should say david nixon of course yes not inventor of Basil Brush, no, but, but the first person to have Basil Brush on a show. Yeah. Yes. And his last appearance on television was on the Basil Brush show. All right. Okay. So. Uh, Robert Reed's name made yes. me grin well, as it's, well. It's Thames, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. I mean, the trick he seems to do most mm. appears to be um, putting a, a lady in a in a box to lie down. Yeah. Levitating her up. Yeah. And then there's a flash. Yeah. Or summer, and she sort of disappears, and all that's left is a a warm dress. A warm. Why is it a warm dress? Why well, it's a warm dress because she's been wearing it. <laughs> and you know, he's actually you know it's warm because <laughs> he said it was. Oh right, okay. <laughs> so still warm. But yeah, these these are great fun. I think really that um, mm-hmm. I I really enjoy sort of going through them. Yes. And then, inevitably, you wanted to find out more about David Nixon. Yeah. Generally. Yeah, and there's very little. I mean, there's a there's a few basics on the internet, but we actually found out more by buying um, some merchandise that came out when his shows were still on. Yeah, I mean, you've got a, a slim volume in the form of David Nixon's Magic Box from from Piccolo, which is mm-hmm. basically a series of telling you how to do tricks, how, how to do tricks. So yeah. let me just. Uh, get the intro and again again there's mention of Ali Bongo Ali yes. Bongo was everywhere he was he? my good magical friend Ali Bongo has worked hard with me to present a collection of interesting ideas to fire your imagination and you've actually got his signature and he's drawn a sort of weird top hat with yes. a I think it's a rabbit it's coming a rabbit, out of yeah, it some, yeah. Yeah. some sort of it might be Winston Churchill I don't know <laughs> uh, but to give you a sort of flavour because this is what 1973 this book yeah so the first trick is the string ring thing. You must wear a waistcoat or cardigan for this feat. Mm-hmm. Have I got either of those? Mm, you used to have a waistcoat. Did you? I? Right. I still do. You will need a piece of string about six foot long tied into a magic ring. 
Well, I'm off to a bad start because I haven't got a magic ring for one thing. We don't have any string, and I haven't got six foot of string on me. I've so. got any string. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's. I think this is one of those sort of books that you might have got in your book club at school or yeah. something like or that. Or at Christmas. Or at Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, somebody's put a, a sticky label on the back, so I can't tell you how much. But apparently, mm. it was seventy-five cents in Canada. Yeah, it's probably about. That's the only bit I can read. Yeah. Uh, David Nixon, the famous TV wizard, lets you into his secrets with his superb collection of magic tricks based upon his successful series of programmes for Thames Television. Then somebody on the on Twitter mm. sort of put us on to this. Yes. Because mm. they said that they had a, a David Nixon sort of annual thing with Basil Brush on the cover. Mm -hmm. And a bit of searching yeah. got us to um, to track it down. And, yeah, this is... This is late 60s, this book. Ten and six. Yes, it's David Nixon's book of magic, we De should say. Dedicated to all who aspire to mystify and entertain. Mm -hmm. And we did have to pay a bit for it. Yeah, but it's in remarkably good condition. But it's in good condition. And some of us as old as you. And there's a lot of useful info in yeah. this, actually, especially if mm. you're interested in sort of mm -hmm. the production side of it as mm. well. And as you said, there's not that much info on the internet either about the series or about david really no. No. um so i just wanted to read out a couple of bits and bobs from from this his dad wanted him to be a lawyer mm -hmm. and used to say you will never make any money by shuffling cards mm -hmm. <laughs> i like that um but he did his first sort of ma magic when he was 12 and he mm. had to make a boy scout disappear yes through through a tea from a tea chest through a flap at the back mm -hmm. and then the boy had to run around the building outside and reappear among the audience which mm -hmm. was great except when he did the trick it, it was peeing down with rain and the boy got wet yes. so, so it was rather obvious that uh, so, so yeah making yeah. a wet boy scout appear <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the, the, the stuff about his, his, his wife and family mm -hmm. his third wife his third wife yeah, yeah. Um, he's six foot three, mm -hmm. uh, but nature robbed him of a full head of hair mm. <laughs> early enough to make, make for a thousand jokes about his boldness. They do mm. do quite a bit on yeah, that, do, don't yeah. they? Yeah, Because uh, we saw the um, the Danny Baker TV heroes. Yes. He said about magicians being famously bold. Yes. Uh, well, but, uh, not all magicians. I mean, Paul Daniels isn't... Oh. Um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so there's, there's stuff. So you want to be a conjurer, and mm -hmm. how to do that? And there's another good story about another trick that went wrong when he had mm -hmm. to do uh, a, a thing at the church hall for the mothers' union, mm -hmm. and he sort of secreted a card in the vicar's pocket or something. Mm -hmm. And um, he said during the show, he said, "If the vicar will kindly feel in his coat pocket, he will discover the missing four of spades." And a lady's voice came from the back of the hall. The vicar went home half an hour ago. <laughs> I do like that. But yeah, there's, there's even like uh, David Nixon fiction, mm -hmm. which is very hard to say, involving Basil Brush. Yes. And there's a very nice picture of Basil Brush in his waistcoat yeah. as well. I got that. A vanishing six sixpence trick you can do. Because uh -huh. we're still before decimalisation. Yes. Though he talks about decimalisation in one of the, the episodes, yeah. doesn't he? So. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's fifty years now, yes. isn't it? Since, fifty years ago, a couple of days ago. Since since, since D Day. Mm -hmm. One other thing in the book which I quite like, mm -hmm. giving you a bit of technical info. Yes. About how he does his tricks. Yes. 
And I'll just read it out, I think. It's worth worth reading out in full. Okay. Um, I have another use for monitors, which is, has been of marvellous help to my conjuring. Often the trick calls for a tight close-up on the conjurer's hands. An experienced performer will make the most of these moments by looking hard at the monitor and using it to compose the best possible picture. No one will know because his face is not showing. In my early television days, using this technique was not easy because I practised my tricks in a mirror, which gives you, as you know, a picture reversed from left to right. But the monitor gives a true picture, and I found myself making bad mistakes. Looking at the monitor screen, I would perhaps go to move my hand further round to hide something, but move it the wrong way and make things worse. One of my technical friends at the BBC eventually came up with the answer. He produced a monitor which electronically reversed the picture left to right, giving a mirror effect. That is, when I move my hand to the left, it moves in the same direction on the screen in front of me. The monitor was a heaven-sent help to me. They put my name on it ten years ago, and every time I go back for a new series, somebody remembers to get it out of the stores. I yes. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to have to practice in front of the mirror now, Lisa, okay. doing your trick. Yeah, I don't think I could do sleight of hand. No, maybe not. Yeah. Um, and we should say, you know... David Nixon as a presenter and as, as a magician is immensely engaging. Mm. And I think he really sets up the whole way magic shows will be done on television television from this point onwards because Paul Daniels does a very similar thing in talking to the audience and getting them up on stage to do the stuff with the bunco booth yeah, all that sort of thing. So, you know, television magicians now are following in David Nixon's footsteps i mean saying about paul daniels there there is a clip or, or two of paul daniels and david nixon mm. actually working together yeah. uh the poor da- we did look at a paul daniels magic show from 1979 mm-hmm. and yes that's got ali bongo and george martin involved yeah. and hans moretti who oh, i'd yeah. rather forgotten about mm-hmm. as a bloke with a scary mustache um scary d- german mustache <laughs> German moustache isn't always the best. All right. Luxuriant, is that the yes. word? Yeah. And he's got, who was it, Captain Jim Fox? Yes, who was a, um Olympic shooter. Who, a, a shooter. Who won a, a marksman or something. Marksman yeah. in the Olympic Games. Well, yeah. shot. And he has to shoot plates and yes. things. And then he has to shoot Hans Moretti's head yes. at one point. Yeah. With a, thankfully with a blank bullet, because yes. that could have gone. That would have um, been very messy. I just wanted to say about Paul Daniels, though. Because... Yeah. Um, it, it was, you know, you know the the the, the theme tune mm-hmm. comes back to you, um, and it was only when we watched it the other day I realised that the theme tune doesn't actually quite make sense because mm-hmm. uh, it because it goes um, and when he says it's not a lot, you'll agree it's such a lot. Well, if you agree it's such a lot. Mm-hmm. And he says it's not a lot. You're not agreeing, you're not with, him. agreeing with him, are you? Because <laughs> if you're going to agree with him, you you're should agree it's not, it's not a lot. So it should goes. Uh, and when he says it's not a lot, you'll agree it's not a lot. He's the man who exhales for Daniels. Do 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 do. <laughs> that's what that's what um, that's what we used to sing, didn't yes. it? The man who exhales. He sort of exhales, but, uh... but yeah, there's a definite link between those two. Yeah. So yeah, if you remember the Paul Daniels magic show, you would like David Nixon. I, I think so. Yeah. yeah, and you're right. He is he is a very sort of warm friendly thing it's not oh look how clever and mysterious i am no he's like look look what you know let me do your trick yeah it's much it's much more sort of homely isn't it and and although yeah there's some very good 
good stuff. There is the odd sort of fluff as well, which yeah. I quite like. And I, there's a there's a trick he does with um, a sentry box. Yeah. Oh yes, and yes. They're holding. He and Ali Bongo are holding up a. Uh, like a cloth, a cloth sheet or something and they let it drop slightly and you can see behind the sentry box there's, you, can, a, there's a you can see the hat see, there's, there's a child dressed as like a, as a soldier with a bear skin <laughs> and you can see the top of the bear skin like, put it out put it out <laughs> <laughs> so yeah but yeah all in all I've, I've really enjoyed sort of doing these yeah. they've, they've been great fun so <laughs> and I, I mean before we saw the um, here's David Nixon episode hmm. I'd never really we'd seen him on um Christmas Night with the Stars mm. from the 50s because he does that thing with a little fairy where they inlay yes that's very well yeah. done as well yeah for the 50s it's, yeah it's, especially it's, yeah. especially and yeah but I'd never really seen him but we started watching it and as I say he's very engaging and it wasn't until I looked up a bit about him that I realised because I for some reason I thought he was American because yeah. he's got a slight one of those accents that's almost sort of a bit like Bob Mankhouse's which yeah. sounds slightly American okay but um, he wasn't he was he was born in this country mm. but so yeah I, I think I had it in my, my perhaps I was getting confused with Richard Nixon <laughs> <laughs> I don't know but, uh, <laughs> President David Nixon yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's such a shame because he was he died in 1978 and he was only 59 so presumably he had another sort of good 20 years that he could have performed for because mm. you know I don't think I ever remember seeing him because I was only about six when he died so you know if he'd gone into the 80s I, I have virtually no memory of seeing him no I no. think he would have been really big again yeah. so but yeah that, that's the thing I mean I said I said this to Martin that so so much of this sort of archive TV is stuff we're still discovering yeah and and mm. th th this this is this has proved to be quite quite a good because we were doing two a night sometimes yeah. weren't we I know it was mm. partially to prepare for this article yes. but I was I was quite happy to do yeah, two and I quite so. enjoyed them yeah yeah. yeah. so yeah available from network yes and we'll take the usual commission network <laughs> <laughs> if only yeah. <laughs> now that would be magic wouldn't it would it? Yeah. Yeah. so David Nixon's magic box yes David Christmas David David Christmas, David Christmas Nixon is that his middle name <laughs> David Nixon's Christmas it's not box, is it? It's Christmas surprise, is it? I don't know. Oh, it's over there. I'm <laughs> going to have to go and look there. Hang on. Lift me up, Lisa. Shake me up. Oh, that's it. Right, right. This is live on air. This is. I'm going over. It says, David Nixon's Christmas magic. Christmas magic. That's it. Yeah. Oh, and that's got the um, the, the special uh, um, Thames jingle, oh, yes. hasn't it? Yes, they've done a specially items. recorded yeah. ident. Yeah. yeah. Very Christmassy. I might have to drop that in. So you've got David Nixon's Christmas Magic from the twenty fifth December nineteen seventy four. That's that's the one with uh, Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. And Lamb Chop, yeah. Actually, Lamb Chop was was actually slightly yeah. better than I was fearing. Gosh, puppy, the other puppy was rubbish. Right? Yeah, and the one we've refused to watch, mm -hmm. David Nixon's Magic Hour. Yeah. Uh, it's got somebody's. Oh, it's somebody, got monkeys in, isn't it's it? It's got what somebody we better not say. Yeah. And and the chimpanzees yeah. thing as well. And yeah. you Again, you you were uncomfortable yeah. about seeing that. Well, yeah, especially if they make them smoke, which is what they normally do. <laughs> That's Mr. Pastry, isn't it? No, there's a there's a one um, I saw um, with chimpanzees in not David Nixon, something else, and yeah, they yeah. were got the chimpanzees to smoke. I think was... that was Tony Ancock, wasn't it? It's a Tony Ancock one. No, this is in the seventies. Oh, I don't blame it. Right. So, but yeah. yes, enough of that.
<laughs> Getting back to Magic Box. Yeah. Um, yeah, three three discs. No, four discs. Yeah. Four discs of uh, lots of 70s yeah. celebs as well. Yeah. And into, so, into the bargain. Yeah, and, and odd odd things from other countries. And bloody odd things, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> so, I mean, well worth getting. Um, yeah. Both those. And here's David Nixon. And all the ABC nights as well, because you yeah. get lots. If you don't want to just get magic, you get one on each of the discs. So yeah. you can try them out. Okay. So. There we are. Well, that's the episode done. Yes. So, thank you once again to everyone, everyone who's contributed, helped, mm-hmm. and generally encouraged us. Yes. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. And the next episode is already well underway on my yes. on my sort of editing folders. Mm-hmm. I've I've got a fair bit in in there already. Yes. So, thank you to everyone, and uh, we'll say cheerio and see you again. Bye bye. Bye. Good night. See you next week. And thanks, Daddy. That was episode 57 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings, Nick Goodman and Paul Chandler. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for The Black and Blue Lamp was by Arthur Ellis. And the producer was Brenda Reed. <laughs>